Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Gods and Lies, Episode 3. Iris. The address Andy gave me led to a diner in Greastown called Mama's Cooking. The Greastown district definitely lived up to its name. The whole neighborhood smelled like cooking oil gone bad. Tumbleweeds of wadded-up newspapers and burger wrappers rolled past grimy-looking storefronts with bars on the windows. I saw no statues or shrines, but the slit-pupiled eye of Tinoch, god of thieves and cut purses, winked at me from nearly every alleyway and lintel in a variety of spray-painted colors. Themia and her servants were definitely not welcome here. Although I did catch a few crossed sword tags for her black sheep daughter, Nemesia. Vengeance ruled where justice did not. Before getting out of the car, I peeled off my Justix jacket and replaced it with a spare leather one I kept in my trunk. I also held my blessed oak and concentrated until it shrank down to the size of a match, then I tucked it into the side of my cheek. That way it wouldn't be found with a cursory search, but I'd still feel its vibration if someone lied. Mama's cooking was sandwiched between a boarded-up grocery store and a shop selling dubious natural remedies. Not a living creature in sight, except for a single seagull that regarded me with a beady little eye before returning to peck at a discarded cone of fries. A bell jangled as I entered the restaurant, although few people were there to welcome me. Just a gnarled old man eating soup in a corner booth and a string bean of an outlander kid with a wispy adolescent mustache wiping down the counter. Fryer's broken, the kid announced, before the door finished swinging shut. That's a shame, I said. Bill's mighty hungry. The kid blinked and subtly relaxed out of his tense, hunched posture. His eyes focused. On closer inspection, he was older than I'd first assumed. 20, maybe 21. We might have something in the back, he said. He pulled out a key from around his neck and unlocked the door behind the counter, ushering me inside. Walking into the back room of the diner was like transitioning from night into day. The kitchen was spotless and clean, every dish and cooking implement neatly stacked and ordered. I noted two enormously muscled men in kitchen whites who were probably eyeballing me as closely as I was eyeballing them. Neither one of them looked like they could boil an egg. Past the kitchen was a tiny wood-paneled office. The man sitting behind the old oak desk stood up as I entered. 
he reminded me of a soft-spoken sitcom dad. He wore a linty red cardigan over a dress shirt with khaki slacks and polished dress shoes. He pushed a pair of thick tortoiseshell glasses back up the brim of his nose as he extended a hand for me to shake. This guy had to be Partridge. Good afternoon, the man said. Don't mind Dick. Before I could ask, one of the so-called chefs came up behind me and began a startlingly efficient body search. I slipped my oak from my cheek to under my tongue. Thankfully, Dick didn't go that far. She's clean. Can't be too careful, the man in the cardigan said. He even had the voice of a sitcom dad. Calm, soothing, reasonable. Just a man running a perfectly normal business dealing in the cast-off playthings of gods. She says she's here about Bill, the kid said. Thank you. You can go back to the counter and let the adults talk. Partridge dismissed the boy with a jut of his chin. Keeping mum, I cast an eye around the man's office. Nothing here looked especially incriminating or out of place. A mug of pens, a few stacks of paperwork, an ancient fax machine. The only piece of personality was a green porcelain pig on the corner of the desk. It looked familiar for some reason, although I couldn't quite place it. Partridge turned back to me. And how is Bill? I remembered Andy's advice. Be indirect. Bill's taken a sudden interest in bird watching. Kestrels, in particular. From behind me, I heard a startled murmuring from the goons in the kitchen. Partridge crossed to the door and closed it against the unhappy muttering. Of course, of course, Partridge said. We can't apologize enough for this unfortunate incident. Bill has always been a loyal customer, so to show our apologies and our appreciation when we recover the merchandise, Bill is welcome to it at a significant discount. My mind scrambled to keep up with this new information. Recover the merchandise? Bill is perhaps a little curious as to how this incident occurred. His curiosity is understandable, and you may assure him that we are running our own internal investigation into the theft, with no expense spared. Right, I said. So Estros was missing a Kestrel relic, and it had been stolen from the relic dealers. Recently. This was all the information I'd been looking for. I could get out now. But if I pressed a little harder, I could get even more. Bill understands that incidents like this endanger everyone, I began, trying for Partridge's neutral tone. And the longer the merchandise remains out in the world, the harder it will be to retrieve quietly. In the spirit of our partnership, he sent me to help you recover it. Partridge blinked, assessing. Ordinarily, we handle everything in-house, but this is no ordinary case. You may tell Bill we find his proposal acceptable. He returned to his desk, rubbing the head of the little porcelain pig in passing, and unlocked one of his desk drawers with a key from his belt. As discussed, the merchandise resembles a kestrel carved out of dark wood, all one piece about six inches long. Under no circumstance should you attempt to pick it up by its beak. It vanished three weeks ago from one of our safe houses, but as far as we know, it hasn't been resold yet. You'll want to come closer and see this. 
I crossed to the desk, possibilities already piling up in my brain. A missing relic shaped like a kestrel. This could be our actual murder weapon. Or murder-aiding weapon. Partridge withdrew a thick metal cuff from his desk drawer. His gaze slid to my left wrist a millisecond before he seized it and clamped the cuff around it in one smooth movement. What the hells? I scrabbled at the cuff. I couldn't seem to find a crack or a lock or even a hinge. Partridge smiled pleasantly. This is merely a precaution. We hold all our in-house retrieval experts to the same standards, just on the off chance one of them thinks about returning our merchandise to the Pantheon. Humans possess precious little in this world compared to the gods, so we hold on to what we have. The cuff will come off when the merchandise is returned, in, let's say, a week. If not, the cuff will contract and contract. I did a quick mental head count. One teenage string bean, two solid goons, and a sitcom dad. Four to one. Not great odds, but not impossible either. Fuck this noise. I spat out my blessed oak, snagging it in the air as it expanded to the size of a cudgel. I brought it down as hard as I could on the cuff. It creaked in protest, but didn't break. Well, shit. At the sight of the oak, Partridge's face contracted into a rictus of fear and rage. He knew what the oak meant. He knew what happened to men caught in the spotlight of the gods. He threw himself at me before I could land a second blow. I thwacked him across the face with the cudgel and he reeled backward, spitting teeth. He snatched at the green porcelain pig and smashed it. Screaming, Justix! 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 The door flew open as the chef stormed in. As I expanded the oak into a quarterstaff, pain shot up my left arm as the cuff tightened like a vice. I bit back a cry of pain and descended into a fighting stance. Better recalculate these odds. I hadn't accounted for the cuff, or the desperation of my opponents. I could see the whites of their eyes as they scrabbled to restrain me, hurt me, kill me. They didn't fear death. If caught, their punishments would last beyond that. I strained to dodge and counter their blows, but the cramped space and the pain in my wrist fractured my concentration and they got a few licks in. Maybe too many. The two chefs managed to restrain my arms, but I landed a kick that sent one of them crashing against the wall. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Partridge holding a small black box that looked to be made of the same material as the cuff. The cuff tightened still further. My left hand spasmed and lost its grip. The kicked chef came back for a second helping, so I spun around and let the first chef take the brunt of the blow. I shrank the oak back down so I could wield it with one hand, trying to find the thrum of Themia's blessing in the grain of the wood, but that gave the goons time to recover. The two chefs rushed me. Calling on Themia's strength, I ducked under the first chef's grapple and gave him a hard blow to the gut, then whirled up and caught the other goon full in the face. The two of them sank to the floor, incapacitated. Partridge came crashing across the desk to land on top of them, unconscious. The small black box tumbled out of his hands. Andy stood above him, panting. His jacket was off and two of his shirt buttons were missing. He was going to detonate it, he said. Whatever it was. I wanted to thank him, 
I wanted to hug him, but the cuff continued to constrict. I could feel the bones in my wrist grinding together. Off! Get it off! Get it off! Andy snatched up the box. There was a white button carved on one side and a black button on the other. He pressed the white button and, with a hiss, the cuff unlatched itself from my wrist and fell to the ground. All the air in the world seemed to rush into my lungs at once, and I wobbled where I stood. Beside me, one of the goons groaned. Andy grabbed me. We need to get out of here. Partridge tripped some kind of alarm. Reinforcements will be coming to torch this place. I like a story that will take me to extremes. And nothing says extreme quite like The Last City, a new Wondery podcast available now. Set in 2072, the city of Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image, which, given its promise of being a miraculous green haven in a climate-ravaged world, shouldn't be too hard to sell, but things are not always as perfect and shiny as we'd like to believe. When she stumbles upon a dark secret that could lead to the downfall of Pura's existence if revealed, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. We broke into a run as soon as we left the restaurant. Shadows detached from stoops and alleyways as we ran. Some chased us, more of Partridge's crew. Some fled. Others dashed into the restaurant we'd just vacated to destroy any evidence that anyone had been there. I fished my keys out of my satchel just as we made it to the car. I'll drive, Andy said. I made to protest, but another wave of dizziness nearly sent me into a faceplant. I was more beaten up than I'd thought. Fine. Once we were a safe distance away, I leaned back against the headrest, waiting for my heart rate to go down. Andy said nothing. He drove in silence, glancing over at me occasionally, his clean seaside smell filling up the inside of the car, like my very own handsome air freshener. Stupid brain. Where are you taking me? I asked. My voice sounded like I'd swallowed sandpaper. Getting you something to eat before you completely go into shock? He said. No diners, I groaned. 
he took us to a pasta kitchen two blocks away from the Temple of Justice. A golden idol of the grain god Pothin beamed down at us from the entrance, a sheaf of wheat clasped in his crow's beak. We wound up in a little booth safely tucked away from the windows, a flickering stub of a candle the main source of light. I would have teased Andy for such an unexpectedly romantic setting, but I was honestly too tired to care. Carbs, he said after we ordered. Carbs fix everything. A headache started to pound at my temples. Thank you. There's nothing. I mean it. I pushed aside my embarrassment. I hated feeling this raw and wobbly, but I wouldn't let a debt go unpaid. I had the information I needed, but I overplayed my hand. How did you know to come back for me? Now it was Andy's turn to look embarrassed. Didn't feel right just sending you off like that. I felt... responsible. So I followed you to Mama's cooking. When I saw that scrawny, chicken-faced kid booking it out of there, I knew something was wrong. A laugh slipped out of me. You felt responsible. What the hell is in that suit you're wearing? I know, right? His smile lasted a few moments more, before it folded beneath an expression of worry. I thought you weren't supposed to come back to Greastown. I said. Are you going to get in trouble for this? Andy shrugged. I'm always in trouble. Maybe I was imagining the rasp of strain in his voice. I was so tired. And we were both here, in one piece, together. We were safe. What happened in there? He pressed. Just like I said, I screwed up. Just thinking about it made my wrist ache. It twinged when I moved it, but I didn't think anything was broken. He made as if to argue, but the food showed up, and I played the I'm-stuffing-my-face card for a few extra minutes. Did you at least find out anything good? He asked. Yeah. The relic dealers were sitting on a Kestrel relic. Until it was stolen three weeks ago. And he frowned. Three weeks? Pippa's been Estros' favored for the last eight months. You wouldn't necessarily need the relic to threaten Estros. You'd just need to know where it was. Maybe Estros started demanding proof. Wanted to see the relic in person. Those guys back there thought the theft was an inside job. What I don't see is what they have to do with Pippa. Maybe this isn't about Pippa. Excuse me? My voice came out higher than I intended. Then who is this about? The murderous relic dealers who lost some merchandise? The immortal, untouchable god being blackmailed? Pippa's the one who's dead. She died alone in a temple full of strangers who didn't even know what courses she was taking. Nobody knew what she was feeling or going through, and now no one ever will. I can't let that stand. My throat started to close up as the familiar coils of helpless, untapped anger constricted inside me. Hey, hey. Andy slid around the booth until he was next to me. Iris, what's going on? Nothing. I shouldn't be making this personal. The wavering candlelight shimmered against the scales lining Andy's cheekbones, reminding me that he wasn't fully human. His mother gave birth to the ocean. He was half like them. 
This is the part where I say something stupid, Andy said in a stage whisper. And then you get mad at me and forget all about those stupid feelings. Stupid feelings. I laughed, but I felt something dangerous loosen within me. I couldn't tell if I felt freed or frightened. Andy looked at me, and his eyes darkened as they dipped to stare at my mouth. I could feel what was going to happen, the same way I could see the tide coming in, and I didn't want to push him away, but I didn't want to hurt him. I turned my face away. You want to know why this case with Pippa Marwal is so important to me? Of course. I stared at my half-empty plate until the colors started to blur. I'm the sun's fall. What do you mean? Didn't you keep up with the whole debacle with Delanthos five years back? The rest of Nexo sure did. What? You... I heard his sharp intake of breath. That was you? But her name was... I changed my name. I pulled a piece of lettuce out of my salad and started shredding it between my fingers. Before I joined Themia's priesthood, I was a member of Delanthos's. Joined right out of high school. And when I say I worshipped Delanthos, I mean that in every sense of the word. The cheap vinyl of the seat squeaked as Andy shifted, but he didn't say anything. Eventually, the relationship turned mutual. Or as mutual as it can get with a member of the Pantheon. Andy sucked in a breath and let it out slowly. You were Delanthos's favorite. I dipped my head. Yeah. And I wasn't like Pippa. I was all about the perks. I liked having the attention of a god. It's a real shock to the ego. But it made me stupid. I loved him. Or at least I thought I did. And because of that, I ignored or explained away so much of what was going on in front of me. That is, until I took a wrong turn into one of the restricted areas of the temple and witnessed a bunch of his highest-ranking priests cooking Zep. Zep's no joke, Andy. It's wildly illegal, impossibly addictive, and drives most of the humans who use it insane. I always wondered about that when the scandal first broke, Andy said. Delanthos rules the sun. Why bother dealing drugs? I rubbed my fingers together, bitterness seeping into my voice. Money? Delanthos publicly lowered his tithing rates to almost nothing six months before. For the good of the people, he said. It won him raves in all the papers. Our worshipper count skyrocketed. Setting up a Zep lab in his own temple was how he could afford it. It certainly didn't hurt that he was using his own sweat in the recipe. Zep was illegal, for humans anyway, precisely because the formula called for the sweat, blood, or tears of a deity. When prepared correctly, it produced a high akin to experiencing the full, undivided beneficence of a god. When cooked badly, or made with less than holy ingredients, the results could be fatal. I sighed. When I confronted him, he really, truly didn't understand how that was his problem. Who cared about a bunch of pathetic human junkies? 
He wasn't forcing anyone to take the drug, and couldn't I see what this positive press was doing for his temple? Holy shit. I spent my life believing Delanthos looked out for us, kept us safe. But the image of benevolence was more important to him than actually being benevolent. Finding that out, it broke my heart. So you blew the whistle on him, Andy said. Fat lot of good that did, I said. Oh, his precious image took a hit, for a while. But then he went to the press and blamed me, turned me into the scorned lover who betrayed her god out of petty jealousy. The Sun's Fall. That stupid nickname. That was his idea. Did you know that? And the three mothers did call a council meeting, but it was just for show. You can't prosecute a god for a human crime, and the council ultimately concluded that Delanthos could do as he pleased with his own bodily fluids. After a light scolding from the three mothers, he got off scot-free. But you didn't. I had to eat frozen vegetables for half a year afterwards, I said. It was easier to talk about minor details. Anything fresh rotted as soon as I brought it back from the market. The goddess of the harvest and Delanthos were tight, you see. Flowers died around me too. Milk soured. Delanthos has lots of friends. They spat at me during that meeting. Cursed me. Called me ungrateful. Andy opened his mouth, then closed it without saying anything. What was there to say? Ungrateful. The word burned my tongue. The sun god himself favored me, and I had the gall to defy him. Shit. Iris. I wasn't done. I had to explain. It was like vomiting. You couldn't stop halfway. But I didn't just lose my faith. Or my reputation. I lost my family. They're sun worshippers through and through, going back seven generations. They taught me to worship Delanthos before I could walk. And I couldn't make them understand why I'd done what I did. You're supposed to obey your patron god without question, and I'd broken that cardinal rule. Parents, sisters, cousins, they all disowned me. I swallowed against the hard lump in my throat. At the time, it really felt like I'd lost everything. Andy was quiet. So quiet I could imagine I heard his heartbeat. That's why I want to help Pippa, I said. Because I understand how quickly the blessing of a god can turn into a curse. And how few resources a human has when the gods turn against them. Is that why you wear so much sunscreen? I snorted. Yeah, although these days it feels more like a symbolic gesture than anything else. Delanthos doesn't have any more power over me. Because now you have Themia, Andy said. I gotta admit, it's hard picturing you as anything other than a Justix. I laughed, a little less bitterly. Fate's a funny thing. At the time, I felt I had little choice. Not a lot of gods were willing to accept a worshipper with a reputation for snitching. And while Themia agreed with the Three Mothers' ruling, she... sympathized with my anger and showed me how I could use that to serve the people as well as the Pantheon. Before too long, I realized that's what I'd wanted to do all along. 
so it all worked out in the end. I pulled away. That's not what I meant. Joining Themia's priesthood doesn't put a pretty bow on my whole backstory. I've still got plenty to be angry about. I just mean she showed you the pantheon's not all bad. It's not about good and bad, I snapped. It's about who has power and who doesn't. You wouldn't understand. Andy edged away from me, just a little, but enough. He looked stricken. My story worked, but why did I suddenly feel bereft and disappointed? You're right. I can't even imagine what you must have gone through, but... You don't have to imagine. This was why I'd told him, right? So he'd back off, like he was doing now. It's just... There's something I haven't told you. I took out my wallet and plunked down money for the food. Tell me tomorrow. Sorry, but I'm just exhausted. I think I need to head home if I'm going to be in any sort of working shape tomorrow. Do you need cab fare? I'm good, but Iris... I didn't wait to hear the rest of what he had to say. I just felt... drained. I had no defenses left, and at this rate, if he touched me, I'd blurt out the rest of my life story or do something equally stupid, like kiss him. As I drove back to my apartment, I felt the twinge of every bruise, practicing for the chorus of aches they would be in the morning. But I needed to be alone, in a place where I felt safe, with its blackout curtains and soft lighting and my familiar shrine to Themia. She wasn't a kind goddess, or a soft one, but she was fair. Mercilessly, relentlessly fair. And that was enough for me. Andy. I heard a strange roaring in my ears as Iris walked out of the restaurant. It wasn't my sea sense. I drained that to the barest ebb back at Mama's cooking. Iris, the sun's fall. The woman who exposed the Sky Mother's favorite son as a criminal, but got punished instead. It explained a lot, and it explained nothing. Sure, this was why she could be so fearless in the face of Tillamon's rage. Why she was so eager to chase this case to the very end, regardless of the secrets she dredged up. But then, why the fuck did she have anything to do with me? Mother unmake me, I was stupid. How could she even stand to be in the same car with me? Here I was, in some tacky little booth, thinking I was sharing a moment with her. Drooling over her like an idiot, after she'd just been attacked. Was I any better than Delanthos? Drown and damn it. I hadn't even told her what I'd found out from Etha. There was no hope of anything between us. I could see that now. But did I have to be so utterly useless about the case, too? We were on the same side. The Marwals had wanted their daughter back. Surely they'd want to know who killed her. But instead, I'd hidden what I had, so that I could get the credit. What was wrong with me? I pushed my half-empty plate away. I'd phoned Iris. That's what I'd do. Phone her, give her the evidence I'd found, and then take a step back from this case. I wasn't a professional. I wasn't a detective. 
I was a schmuck. I gazed across the seat. Iris had left her wallet on the table. She'd been so eager to get away from me. I'd have to get it back to her somehow. I stood up from the booth just in time to see three familiar figures walk into the restaurant. Nymphs, and not the fruity drink-serving kind. They wore breastplates of ice, with their hair frozen into bristling spikes. Their leader wore a thin circlet of beryl to denote her status as the Sea Mother's right hand. She strode up to the quivering restaurant hostess, her feet leaving damp prints on the wood. I couldn't hear what she said, but when the hostess turned and pointed towards me, I got the general gist. Busted. Someone had clocked me in Greasetown. I ducked beneath the table, my heart plummeted through my chest to rattle at the bottom of my stomach. Leona was mom's best tracker and if she'd followed me this far, there was no way I was getting out of this restaurant without a fight. I needed a brilliant idea, but all I had were bad ones. Leona's bare feet slapped against the floor, getting closer and closer. China rattled as nervous restaurant patrons abandoned their meals to get out of her way. Think, Andy, think. I reached up and seized Iris's wallet. I rifled through the bills with one hand, scrabbling for the pen in my pocket with the other. Putting the money back, I glanced across the restaurant until I settled on a glass of water on an abandoned table 50 feet away. Did I have enough sea sense for a distraction? I reached out with my power, what little of it remained, and focused on the liquid. It started to bubble and boil, and with an almost musical tinkle, the glass exploded in a shower of shards. As the sound of footsteps headed for the noise, I slid out from under my table and raced toward the back exit. I made it about 10 feet before my shoes skidded across a sheet of ice thrown in my path. My feet flew out from under me, and I landed hard enough to force half the air from my lungs. Leona stood over me, her eyes black and fathomless. Don't make this harder than it has to be. This was the easy way? I wheezed. Look, I can explain. The time for explanations is over. Now is the time for punishment. She lifted her fist and froze it into an unforgiving ball of ice. She brought it down with full force, and the world went white, brown, then black. My cell phone woke me 20 minutes before I was due back at the Temple of Justice for my morning debrief. Every muscle in my arm complained as I reached to answer it. Justix Tharo. Good, I caught you. How Amelia managed to sound so happy while working for the Goddess of Death was one of life's biggest mysteries. How's it going? Not great, I admitted. Themia saved me, but I hurt everywhere. I ran the autopsy on Pippa Marwal, the death priestess said. Kept it discreet, like you said, but well, you know. I didn't, but I was too tired to ask. Do you have time to come in today? I need to debrief first, I said, but then I'm yours. As I got dressed, I fished into the pocket of my temple-issued jacket and realized my wallet was missing. I checked the leather jacket I'd worn to Greasetown. Same deal. Shit, I must have left it in the restaurant. Memories of the previous night flooded back. Themia, preserve me. What must Andy think? 
I'd cracked like an egg and spilled the most personal story of my life in front of him, and then I'd fled like an idiot. After a minute's hesitation, I sent Andy a text about where I planned to go and followed up on the wallet. Just routine, nothing out of the ordinary. I swallowed a few gulps of tea, applied a layer of sunscreen, and ran out the door. The public worship areas of Themia's temple greeted supplicants with intimidating statuary and impassive white marble, but the temple's upper floors, dedicated to the internal workings of Themia's priesthood, made do with the buzzy fluorescent lighting and thin carpeting one might expect from any mid-level business office. Practicality was the order of the day. Moments after I stepped out of the elevator, a sacred bloodhound galloped down the corridor toward me with a sealed message cylinder in her mouth. I scratched the hound behind her ears until her left leg thumped in delight, and then I took the cylinder and unwrapped the message. Themia's high priest wanted to see me. Father Edwin stood up from his desk as I entered his office. He was tall, lean, and spare, with an ineffective comb-over of white, filmy strands that preferred to float around whenever his head moved, like a sea anemone. He gestured toward the chair in front of his desk. Please sit. Edwin was a decent administrator, faultlessly loyal to Themia, and the dogs loved him, but the two of us never got along. He frowned upon my use of criminal informants. And he was frowning now. Themia, save us, he said. You look like you were run over by a car. Oh, a concerned frown. I'll live. I've no doubt. He bent over the miniature shrine to Themia next to his desk and started mixing some familiar ingredients into the offering bowl. A tuft of fur from a temple hound, three drops of sacred oil, an oak twig. He had to flick his cigarette lighter a few times to get the offering to catch. I thought this was just a debrief, I said. Do we really need Themia to sit in? Edwin took a deep breath of the foul-smelling smoke, and somehow his expression deepened into a heretofore unknown depth of disappointment in me. I'm afraid we do. The shrine smoke started to waver and twist, as if responding to a non-existent breeze. As I watched, it braided itself into a miniature hazy facsimile of my goddess, signature topknot and all. There was even a little wisp in her hand representing her famous bow. Good morning, Sister Iris. My posture straightened at the thrum of her voice. Good morning, Huntress of Justice. My high priest has imparted to me some rather distressing news. He reached under his desk and withdrew the morning's paper. Explain this, please. I glanced at the headline, and my heart took a panicked leap into my throat. An ill wind blows in Estros's temple. Shit. I seized the paper and read through the article. The victim, a 21-year-old chemistry student at Nexos University, was found transmogrified into a seabird in the early hours of Monday morning. It was the case. My case. It outlined everything in gruesome detail. The bloody sacrifice on the high altar, the wind god's disappearance, the torrid affair with a student. 
Father Edwin was livid. When you were anointed onto this case, we stressed the need for discretion. This, along with the sudden fiery disappearance of a diner down in Greestown, does not uphold my confidence in your understanding of that word. We've been getting calls all morning. Telamon is furious, Themia added curtly. I didn't leak this, I said. You know I didn't. You can look over my case notes. Everyone we interviewed yesterday had a vested interest in keeping this quiet. My mind ran back down the list of people Andy and I had interrogated. Estrus's priests, Telamon's priests, the relic dealers. You say we, Themia said. I wasn't aware that Andymion Eriki had been ordained into my priesthood. I should say not, Edwin huffed. He provided valuable assistance. Of course Edwin disapproved of our association. Edwin disapproved of associating with people with library late fees. The problem with criminal informants is that they are, at heart, criminals. He's never been formally charged. Only because the Sea Mother kept him within the circle of her protection and grace, Edwin pointed out. He pulled the newspaper out of reach with the tips of his fingers, as if it was covered in some noxious substance. And that's over now. The Sea Mother officially withdrew all financial, protective, and legal support for Mr. Eriki and banished him two months ago. What? I can't have heard right. Themia's smoky figure knocked an arrow to her bow and gazed down its length as if sighting a predator. She did rather more than that. She sent a triad of nymphs to come and bother me at my palace. She all but asked me to arrest him on the spot. Whatever he did, the Sea Mother wasn't pleased. Edwin looked to me. You didn't know? I swallowed, and my shock hardened into a cold lump of dismay at the bottom of my gut. No. I understand he's proven useful on occasion, Edwin said, but a demigod with no legal immunity, no formal employment, and no work experience worth speaking of, he'd need to support himself somehow. He glanced at the newspaper with disgust. How much do you think he made for this story? Andy's sudden need to appear responsible. The suit. The dried scales. I'm always in some kind of trouble. Hadn't I always been a soft touch with him? Pulling him out of scrapes, throwing him an occasional bone in return for information? I was an easy mark, and he'd wormed his way into my case. I'd shared every detail of the situation, and he'd sold it out from under me. That cold lump of dismay curdled, and a wave of nausea scrabbled at the back of my throat. I'd almost kissed him. I'd told him about, well, about everything. Would he try and sell that story, too? If the papers found out the sun's fall was now serving Themia, they'd turn this temple upside down. Edwin's frown relaxed into a shallower, sympathetic line. Thankfully, the goddess of luck must have smiled on you. There was an altercation last night at a nearby restaurant, 
and Andy was apprehended by agents of the Sea Mother. It seems he finally worked his Holy Mother's final remaining nerve. It doesn't look like he'll be profiting off your trust anytime soon. Apprehended? I felt like someone had rattled my head around, scattering my thoughts like leaves so I couldn't catch them. He's the Pantheon's problem now, and good riddance. You need to focus on this case and getting to the bottom of it before it gets worse. Take this as a warning, Justix. In cases like this, be careful of whom you trust. You may go. Themia cocked her head. Actually, I would like a moment to discuss something with my priestess alone. Even as a foot-tall, smoke-fueled representation of her normal omnipotent self, Themia exuded implacable authority. Edwin didn't so much as blink as he hastened to obey, but I couldn't quite contain my smirk at how easily he fled his own office. I'm hearing tales, Sister Iris, Themia said. Her avatar wafted off the shrine and lengthened until she stood as tall as I did. Whispers. Rumors. The unfortunate release of this story has only fed them. What sort of rumors? Themia returned her arrow to its quiver and strapped her bow across her back. Humanity was created to serve the Pantheon, not the other way around. The power of judgment bestowed upon you and all my priests is only applicable to your own kind. And yet you have been using my authority to pursue a god. I lowered my head beneath the weight of Themia's gaze. She was right, of course. I carried her oak. I owed her my loyalty. More than that, I owed her my life. And yet... If I may venture to clarify, I pursue the truth. I don't know for sure if a god is responsible for these crimes. There's just as many clues pointing toward a human murderer. The goddess lifted one misty hand and laid it against my heart. Your tenacity is valued, my priestess, and no one can question your skills. I trust you to chase this lead just as I trust you to abandon it if it looks like it will lead you down roads mortals have no right to tread. Have I made myself clear? I nodded, my heart in my throat. Crystal. You're listening to Gods and Lies, narrated by Carrie Height and Sarah Malo Christensen. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm. Listen away. Leviathan was created as a sanctuary. No! It's... It's... Too much! A monument to hope. Hurry! Run! We have to run! And the last refuge of escape. We have to leave now! I am a Valkyrie. Damn it! I murder gods. And I will bring the raging infernos of hell to meet me under all of the water in the sea. No. Leviathan was built to represent hope. 
it will still be our salvation. Discover the Leviathan Chronicles and listen to all three seasons of the award-winning Immortal Saga, available at leviathanchronicles.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Immortality or freedom, which would you choose? Gods and Lies is written by Elizabeth Vale, produced by Marco Palmieri, and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music are by Amanda Rose Smith.